Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we draw near to the end of Galatians, really Paul begins to bookend this letter with what is central and pivotal to most of all, which is the cross of Christ. And he began with this idea that the gospel is so often misunderstood and in fact wrongly taught. But the way that we understand this gospel most is through this wonder called the cross. John Stott, the noted theologian, pastor, he wrote a whole book on the cross and in it, he describes the historical significance of the symbol of the cross. One of the things that is not so often known about the early church is that the last thing they wanted as a symbol of Christianity was the cross. Because after all, why would you want this execution tool to be the symbol of your faith? It just seems counterintuitive to what you would imagine. In fact, the early church, as they were exploring possible symbols, they had some ideas. And one was, the, the first symbol they came up with is, was actually a peacock. For those of you who have a cross necklace, you might be wearing a peacock if, you, uh, if they had stuck with that. Peacock represented immortality in ancient biblical literature. Or another one that they thought of was the dove, which makes sense, the Holy Spirit. Um, that is so often symbolic of. And another are palm branches from uh, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Another one is one that many of us know of, the fish, which is what Christians used as a secret symbol to define their faith. So how was it that the cross became the Christian symbol? In fact, the only thing the cross represented at that time were those who wanted to make fun of Christians called them a people of the cross because the cross really was this place of ignominy. It was a, a place of disdain and ridicule, mocking. So if you wanted to make fun of Christians, you identified them with a cross. But what did the early church do that transferred that symbol of foolishness to now a symbol of faith. What they did was they examined some of Jesus' words. We look at it from Mark chapter 9, verse 31, where Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. So I think you can see pretty much that it was Jesus himself who wanted to define this faith by the cross. That is to say that the cross was the climax of the mockery of God, but it was also a symbol of the climax of God's victory over sin and death. Therefore, when Paul, examining that idea, looking at Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he shows us that the center of the Christian life, of the Christian faith, is the cross. There really is no better symbol representing Christianity than the cross of Christ. It is the place of ultimate shame. It is the place of ultimate triumph. So for this week and weeks to come, a couple of weeks to come, we'll look at, one, the cross as this picture of self-glory. And then secondly, we'll look at what cross-glory looks like. So first, self-glory. 
the ESV does a, a good job of translating these words from the Greek, but in actuality, I really love the way the King James translates this verse because I think it describes well even better the essence of what Paul is saying. He says, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. To understand this verse, you have to understand first the word glory. And glory is something that we often do not fully grasp because it seems so ethereal, so um, abstract, especially in our day. I like the way though that Pastor Tim Keller, he describes this word glory. And he takes the idea of the word in Hebrew, which is the word kavod, which means heavy. And he describes a big rock, a boulder, that's being thrown into a pond. Imagine a still pond. And this rock, a heavy rock, is just thrown into the middle. Well, what happens to all the water? The centrifugal force of the water, just pull, of the rock, pulls all the water towards it. And in that sense, the heaviness of that rock leads to all that is around it to be drawn in to itself. And there's nothing that anything around it can do. That's what kavod does, heaviness, glory does. You can't help but notice, be drawn into it. And when we think of biblical glory, which we'll look at through the glory of the cross, you can understand it in one way. But when you think about the self as glorious, well, that's a, a different picture. I mean, if, imagine if you, self-glory, if I am the most important person in the world, no matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone believes, I believe this, then all that is around me is drawn into me. I deserve glory. I deserve worship. I deserve deference, respect, honor. And that impacts the way that I live the way that I think. And so Paul says, God forbid that I should glory. That is to say, God forbid that I should suck glory for myself, be a glory suck. Why does Paul say God forbid? You know, Paul's saying, protect me from myself, O Lord. I'm my worst enemy. I love glory. I love applause. I love to be known. We're going to destroy ourselves by sucking everything inward. Imagine we are sort of this interior core of this tornado. And literally, we're walking around and there's, you know, if, if you have a tornado that's spinning around, a grand tornado, cars will come flying, pieces of debris, houses, and you're in the middle, well, danger for you. You get struck by all these things and killed and destroyed. What Paul's saying is, God forbid, protect me, O Lord, from myself. Because unless I glory in the cross, I'm going to glory myself. And a centrifugal force is going to pull all these things towards me, and I will be destroyed. That's what Paul's saying. Now, how does this happen? There are many different ways that we glory in ourselves. Uh, we talked about boasting last week. That is truly a glory in yourself. Boasting has, has another layer to that self-righteousness, the sense that I'm right. And that sense of self-rightness, boasting, 
all of that blinds us to the cross and its implications. Just to consider what this is like, there are so many different areas that we might boast in. Some of us have boasting self-righteousness in our driving. I mean, a lot of us do, which is why there's road rage, which is why that if someone were to critique your driving, anyone ever have someone, a loved one, maybe a wife or a husband say, you know what, I notice when you're pressing the accelerator, you, you sort of go on and off, on and off. When you brake, you brake on and off, on and off, or you're tailgating too much, you're tailgating way too much. How do you respond to that? Are you saying, thank you so much. I really need to get better at driving. You know, I've been doing this for almost three decades and I still am learning. I'm so thankful for your heart of wanting to teach me. You know, if I said that, it would be sarcastic, right? <laughs> if I actually really understood it, then I'd say, I need to learn. I, I'm still growing. But that's not how we respond. In our hearts, there's defensiveness. How dare you challenge accidents? You have all those tickets. How dare you say something like that to me? There's this defensiveness. That defensiveness says it's full righteousness. And that's a blind spot. I can't. No one can ever speak into my life about that. That's a very simple, small area. One big area that I feel many of us have righteousness in is parenting righteousness. You know, for those of us who are parents, you have children. Those children are not perfect. Neither is your parenting. And when we are together in Christ, and this, there is a difference between those who are not in Christ or in Christ. When we're in Christ, we have Christ as our ultimate means by which we gain glory, not in ourselves. So it should be, I'm very open to hearing advice from so-and-so and so-and-so, because I know you care for me and you care for my children. But if your instinct is, if someone says, hey, I noticed that your love you, I want you to know I love you, but notice that your child is really having a hard time listening to you or listening to me and axis and they're really blowing out and I, I need you to hear what you know what's going on and if your instinct is how dare you say that about my child my son you know how awesome my son is he never does anything wrong so if you say that there's something wrong with you and it's our instinct to be so defensive because we are self-righteous we believe in self-glory and no one can speak into that it's, it's really stark, and it doesn't matter what it looks like. When we uh, first started the church, we had small groups, and we had, you know, there was one small home group, and uh, one of my daughters, um, she was one and a half years old, and we were in a small group where there was another little boy who was about the same age, one and a half, and every time we met on Friday night, he would bite her. He would bite her so deeply that you could see not just the bite marks, but I mean, it would be almost bleeding. And my wife and I, we, would ju we were just pulling out our hair going, I, that's so, as a, as a parent, it's so unnerving, right? But we didn't want to say, say anything to the parents. We, we just felt bad for the parents. Here we are having our child bitten. And so we didn't say anything. And what happened is we, we decided to come up, my wife and I came up with a plan. Okay, um, well, actually, the plan was I, I had to lead this study, so she was actually watching. So she would walk, watch, not be part of the group, watch over this boy and my, our daughter, and make sure he's not biting and so forth and so on. 
Well, this was going on for months and almost every week when my wife would just turn her back, he would, it would be like jaws, you know, right onto her. And eventually we just said, we can't take this anymore. It, we just, it just cannot be like this. So we sat down and we said, can we have a conversation with you? And we said, you know what? You have to help us stop your son from biting our daughter. And our, we sensed from them, especially, our, their first instinct was defensiveness. Sort of, what's wrong with my son? He's just being free. And I was thinking, you can be free, but not on my daughter's arms. <laughs> you know, like, that's okay. Did you see, there's this, I mean, to you that, I mean, as we're listening to this, you should be able to hear, oh, can we not have that conversation without this instinct of defensiveness? It's, but it, I understand at the same time, because I know I'm like that, we're all like that. That's called righteousness. And when we think that no one can speak into our lives because, um, well, my child, how dare you say that about my child? That's the, the epitome of child righteousness, parenting righteousness. As if to say something about that conversation actually says something about who I am as a person. That's totally not true. But it is true when self is glorified when we are the, the God of our world, that's always a dangerous place to be in. I could have gone on. There are so many different ways this plays out that it's endless. And by the way, no one is immune from it. We're all in this place. And it is so hard. So any place you feel defensive about, any place you feel no one can speak into my life, and if people are walking around you with eggshells, and here's the challenge, is that if you are this person, you can't tell people are walking around you on eggshells. They, they, literally, everyone around you is just trying to make sure that you don't blow up. And if they say something, then boom, all the, the, you know, just the anger and the fury and the rages, even the silence is deadly. That's called self-glory. Have you ever struggled with self-glory? Haven't you believed perhaps that you deserve praise, rewards, because you are hardworking, because you are moral, because you did things rightly? But know this, you'll always be deeply disappointed and perhaps even crushed because sometimes things don't go your way or people will say something that turns you off. Are you perhaps too, as uh, Jack Miller described, too high on your successes or too easily overwhelmed by defeats. And both of those so often is in the same person. Someone who can be so ecstatic when things go super well and everything else is blinded, but when there's major defeats, they're still blinded by everything around them. Nothing matters except what they feel. That's self-glory. And that self-glorying life is a despairing life. It is a wearisome life. Not just for you, but for everyone around you. There's a better way. The better way is called cross-glory. And for the next couple of weeks, we'll look at this cross-glory. 
if we look at the King James again, it says, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Cross glory eternally outshines self-glory. Self-glory has a limited battery. Uh, for the past few weeks, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but one of our smoke detectors in this church was chirping. And so while we're working, you hear that chirping sound, right? It's so annoying. And you, I'm, I'm looking everywhere trying to figure out where is it. Finally found it, put it, pulled it out, put it back in, and it's still making the noise. It, lo and behold, there was user error. I put the battery in backwards. <laughs> but this happens actually quite often. Now, here's the problem with battery-powered things. They just, no matter what type of battery, it lasts only to a certain point and eventually dies. But when you have something that lasts forever, now that's dramatically different. And here's the thing about self-glory. Self-glory is that battery-powered operated thing. It lasts for a moment. It can feel good. It, it feels people are applauding your merits, your work, your efforts, your parenting, your academic skills, your work. But eventually, something goes wrong, and no longer are they applauding you, they're criticizing you. So the shift is so quick, and it just doesn't last. But the, what Paul is saying here is that cross glory has eternal durability, eternal shine, eternal beauty. The wonder of the cross never fades. Actually, the opposite. It increases with time. It increases infinitely, progressively with time. And I hope to show you this through the different aspects of this glory that Paul shows us at the cross. The first aspect is that we'll cover today is example. Paul knew this because he lived this by example. If you look at the first part of this verse, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. For Paul, this was his life. He really believed that he was the example of how the glory of the cross outshone everything. And for Paul, it was deeply personal. Paul began his letter in Galatians 1.13 by saying this, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And that's how he described it. This is why he saw himself as the foremost of all sinners. He wasn't like me and you, he was actually worse than us. You know, morally speaking, he was worse. He actually went out to kill people, to kill Christians. And he did all that he could to stop us from doing what we're doing right now. That's how bad he was. And so when we consider what Paul has done, we might say, well, I feel, actually, I don't feel that bad then with all my sins because Paul seems a lot worse. The flip side of that, though, is that Paul said, I'm also the most zealous of all people who follow the law. And recall that this church and these churches were facing false teaching from Judaizers, believing that you need to be a Jew first in order to be a true Christian. You need to follow the law. And Paul was saying, hey, I followed the law more than any other Jew. I was the most zealous of all Pharisees, I knew the law better than anyone else. 
Whatever it took, I did it more. So if you, if you think those Jewish leaders are so great, trust was greater. Paul knew the lowest of the lows, being the persecutor of the church, but the highest of highs, being the, the greatest religious teacher of all. And he had everything as well as he was educated. He was intelligent. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is the pastor of Westminster Chapel, and I've quoted him many times. But he would, before he was a pastor, he was a physician. He was not only a physician, but he was one of the leading physicians of his day in England. He was on track to be the royal physician of England, basically. And you only get that job if you were one of the best doctors in all of that whole country. And one of the things that he notes about the Apostle Paul is when you look and study all of Paul's logic, his framework, you see Paul was a genius. And no matter what he would have done, he would have been a nuclear physicist. He probably would have been one of the best. He would have won a Nobel Prize. And that's how much Martin Lloyd-Jones viewed Paul. And if you study him, you see that. You could see how meticulous his logic was, how zealous, how diligent, how tireless. Everything you would want in a person's success was Paul. He also had, with all of that, the greatest hatred of all. So if you thought maybe atheist Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens had a lot of hatred toward Christianity. Paul had more hatred, so much more that he was willing to literally persecute the church and lead people to their death. So Paul was a genius and he was also the Taliban of his day from a Jewish perspective when it came to Christianity. This is who the apostle Paul is. You, so you have to grasp that to hear then these words, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, the cross of Christ. That is to say that I had everything, but when I was in that world, I thought it was everything until I met Christ, until I saw the cross. And once I saw that cross, everything, as Paul says in Philippians 3, became foolishness, rubbish, trash, dung, Comparatively, the cross outshone it all. And when we understand this and we could see the Apostle Paul and see how much this man who had so many gifts decided it's all trash relative to Christ. Well, that's something to follow, to understand. So Paul makes that point in this verse alone. Secondly is this idea of examination. The cross examines your heart. Do you really believe in Christ or do you only say you believe in Christ? That is to say that you can say I am a Christian, but if the cross doesn't move you and impact the way you think and you live, then you have to ask the question, am I really a Christian? Do I really believe in Jesus? Christians are cross-centered. They are Christ followers. They, that is to say you cannot remain neutral when you stand before the cross. You're going to either mock the cross or you're going to glory in the cross. But there's nothing in the middle. You're going to detest it and revile it and think it's utter foolishness or you're going to say, this is my hope. This is all that I live for. But you cannot find the cross mediocre or normal or ordinary. There's no such thing as an ordinary Christian. That's an oxymoron because the cross is the center of the Christian's life. And the cross doesn't allow us to be ordinary. Jesus never allowed us to be ordinary. 
We can't just get by as a Christian. I like the way Martin Luther puts it. He says, the world thinks Christians are wretched and miserable people. And it hates and persecutes them with what it thinks true zeal. Condemning and killing them as pernicious plagues of the spiritual and worldly kingdom, like heretics and rebels. But they do not suffer these things for murder, theft, and other such wickedness, but for the love of Christ, whose glory they proclaim. The world thinks Christians are wretched and miserable. Now, you probably don't think that of the world. You probably think, well, actually, a lot of people know that I'm a Christian, but they don't think I'm wretched and miserable. Start talking to them about the gospel. And you'll find that either they will mock you and ridicule you, or they will be humbled before the cross. But there's no ordinary. The more you hide the cross and sort of keep it to yourself, you won't face ridicule. You might face acceptance. You'll be welcomed in as part of the world. But once you start sharing what you believe about the cross yourself, once you just simply say that, suddenly there's going to be a reaction. There always is. And many times, most times, you're going to be ridiculed. But there will be those times where someone will say, tell me more. I've been waiting for that. Someone, I've been waiting for someone to tell me about that. I've never known. So it's, it's all about how much we reveal of the cross that we believe in. And so Martin Luther is right, but you don't do this because you are afraid. You do this because you love, because you love the cross, because you're enthralled by the cross, because it impacts the way you live. And when you do that, we do so because the glory is so tremendous. We get something out of this. My brothers and sisters and friends, Christianity is not a bunch of masochists. Christians are not masochists. We don't love suffering for suffering's sake. But here it is. When we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, when we examine our hearts, because the cross sort of pierces our hearts, and it says, what do you really believe? Do you really believe that I suffered and died on this cross? If we did then we're forced to make a decision. We can't just sit back and wonder. The glory of the cross through Christ is what provides eternal joy everlasting. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Writer Jen Oshman tells of a friend who wanted the same glory, this to understand this glory for others. And several years ago, a young aid worker was killed by the Taliban in Afghanistan. This is before the US, this is years ago, before the US left Afghanistan. Violence from the Taliban had been increasing, and it's been increasing for a while. And her sending agency and the State Department were urging all Americans to leave Afghanistan. Her response at the time, not make me leave Afghanistan. It will kill me if I have to leave. She wanted to give all of her remaining days to provide medical relief for the, and the gospel to the Afghans. So one day, a terrorist, Taliban terrorist, hid a gun under his fake arm bandage, entered the clinic where she and other Christians were providing medical care, 
and he opened fire in killing all the medical workers, all the Christians that were there, including her. And this is this man's reason as to why he did this. He said, if they kept doing what they were doing, then the whole country would believe in Jesus. If they kept doing what they kept on doing, the whole country would believe in Jesus. You know, what's going to change the world is not going to be money, governments, military power. What's going to change the world is the gospel, the cross. But the cross, you have to believe in the cross, then believe that that cross is where Christ suffered and therefore he calls us to that cross. And then we need to live by faith in light of that cross and even be willing to undergo such suffering. And if we are to do so, then even Afghanistan would turn to Christ. That place that no military power, no government, and many have tried, the Soviet Union, the United States, many have tried to change Afghanistan. None have succeeded. The cross would work. It does. But we need Christians to do so, and even to suffer for the sake of Christ. Not just in Afghanistan, but even in your workplace, even in your neighborhoods. Are we willing to actually say, not only do I am willing to live in light of that cross, and even face ridicule for that cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. The test of whether someone is teaching the cross rightly or wrongly is whether it is an offense to the natural man or not. Meaning this, if we believe the cross is what, it says, what Jesus says it is, it's saying to us that there is nothing at all that you and I do that makes God happy with us. Nothing. Not going to church on Sundays, not being a really good parent, not providing for your family, not reading the Bible, not even repenting of your sins, not praying, nothing. To your, when we come to the Lord, we come with empty hands. On that last day, there is nothing that you're going to say or bring to God that says, where God is going to say, well done. It's because of that that you're welcome. No, it's but the cross of Christ. That's it. And that is an offense to the natural person. The worldly natural person says, I absolutely reject that. How dare you say that my intelligence means nothing, that my hard work, my efforts, it doesn't. It's but the cross of Christ. Christ and Christ alone. And until we get to that place, it's either going to offend us or it's going to be our glory. We're going to be so thankful to say, thank you, Lord, that it is that cross that saves me. You know, the cross assumes that we cannot do it. We can't save ourselves. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Romans 8, 7 says essentially the same thing, that we were hostile to God. So according to Paul in Romans 5, 10 and Romans 8, 7, we were enemies and hostile to God. Paul, I think everyone here can say, oh yeah, Paul, he was definitely an enemy of God. I mean, he showed it. But what about you? Before you became a Christian, would you have ever thought yourself to be an enemy? I went to church my whole life. Pretty much, I grew up in the church. Was I an enemy to God? I know one thing. If you were to see what's in my mind, in my heart, all those years, 
absolutely I was an enemy to God, rebellious in every way, no different than Paul. Sure, it exhibited itself differently, but in the heart, exactly the same. And here's the thing is that for all of us, if you have a right view of the cross, it starts with saying, I was once an enemy of God. Or if you are not in Christ now, you are an enemy of God, meaning you have no desire for him, no love for him, you're hostile towards him. And until we get that to, to that place, that no matter what it looks like on the outside, there's a hostility in my heart. Now, I don't know if you've ever found a baby. Most people think babies are innocent. Why? Because they're cute. They have a big head and small body. And anything that has a big head, like puppies, they have, they're cute. But as a puppy grows, they're not so cute. They start smelling like a dog. You know, they start shedding all their hairs. and They're no longer as cute anymore, right? Well, a baby is often thought of as cute and innocent. Because they're cute, it's thought of they're innocent. That's sort of the way it works. Cute things are always innocent. Now, here's what I want you to do. If you have a baby, and they're about the age where they can say something, I want you to go to them and say, no, and see whether they Thank you so much, dad and mom, for saying no to me. I was thinking about putting this, this fork into that outlet, but when you said no, it saved my life. I'm so thankful. But sort of not how it works, right? If you say no to a baby, their instinct internally is to be rebellious, is to, throw, is to do a salmon breach. You know, I always call it, Sue and I call it the salmon breaching, where they go, ugh. I mean, at the youngest of ages, they're rebelling. They're saying, I refuse to yield to you. Now, the body is still cute. The face, you still melt your heart. But the words, the action, the tantrum, which, and as we all know, that little baby that's cute, they lose their cuteness. The feet no longer are cute. They smell. You know, the, the, the body changes and they have a teenager boy smell or something. They, you know, it starts no longer being cute at all, and now it's just the rebellion. That's what we're dealing with. Similarly, spiritually, let us not think that because the exterior is cute spiritually when we're young, that there's nothing inside that's hostile to God. No, absolutely, there's hostility towards the Lord, rebellion, anger, a sense of self-righteousness, and it is a danger. I think when we think about God, we think, God, why are you so unjust when troubles come my way, when tragedy comes, when suffering comes? When you look at the cross, and if you are a cross-centered person, you know what you actually think is, God, why were you so terribly unjust to yourself? Forget about being unjust to me. Why were you so unjust to yourself? Why would you... Why would you give your son for someone like me? The cross-centered person always has the cross at the center and says, I don't deserve this. I don't. No matter how long you live, the battle rages. Every day, someone's going to offend you, hurt you, impact you. And your mind is thinking, oh, I have this against this person. I have this against this person. I have this against this person. And all these things are happening. If you forget the cross and it fades, then those things cover you. I mean, literally, it wraps itself around you, sort of 
I mean, like duct tape. Just take duct tape and start wrapping yourself up and then try peeling it all off. Wow, that's trouble. Well, the cross burns all that away. You know, it just wipes all that away. It, it unleashes it. So when I'm troubled with, I'm, I don't like what this person has done and this person's bothering me and I'm having this conflict within my family and all these things are happening and it's just clouding my heart, my soul, become more angry and embittered. It just impacts the way that I live, the way that I think. But then the cross comes and it just literally breaks those bonds and I see Christ. And then suddenly all those things that people have done, they're not as bad as I thought. When we are self-glorying, it matters tremendously what everyone does to me. When we are cross-glorying, suddenly those things that, are, that everyone has done to me, it's not as bad as I think. I'll be okay. I'll be able to live. This is the amazing power of the cross. It is freeing. And this is why Isaac Watts says in the hymn, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. We are together in this cross. We are one in this cross. The boasting is gone. We are saved. We're redeemed. We're all equal before the foot of the cross. All of us. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad, no matter how far or rebellious before the cross, we are welcomed. So where's your boasting? Where's your vain things that charm me most? Oh, we don't want to put our hope in those things. We want the eternal glory of the cross. I hope you do want that as well. Let's pray together. Father, we just praise you that we can come together with much thanksgiving because of your great faithfulness through your son Jesus who gave his life so that we might have life in the cross. Lord, guard us from ourselves, from our self-glorying self. We are in our gravest of dangers when we um, do not consider who you are. Protect us from just our self-glorying. We pray, O oh Lord, that vain charms would not cause us to lose sight of what is most important, what is most eternal, what is most joyous. So as we come to this table, may we come remembering such things. In Jesus' name we pray.